Thank you, Jack, for that ministry and music. Trust you picked up a handout tonight. We're in Ecclesiastes chapter 7, verse 8 through verse 29. I've entitled this Staring Out the Window. Um, Tonight we're going to consider the importance of the way that we think about or ponder life. When I'm talking about staring out the window, I'm not really talking about daydreaming as much as I am uh, simply meditating, thinking about life. Uh, trying to put life into perspective, the circumstances that we're in, the things that we're going through. What are we to think about our circumstances, our life's situation, the news, everything that's taking place in our world? There are so many inputs. We have the news commentators, we have the politicians, we have all these different inputs into our lives. And so we've got to stop and just try to clear our head of all these things and say, what's the Christian worldview? Well, how do I view life in terms of what God's Word tells us? And that, that's the key, and I've said this repeatedly, but in many respects we can't say it often enough because the Scriptures say it so repeatedly. And that is, and I mentioned it this morning, my thoughts are not your thoughts, my ways are not your ways, saith the Lord. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, my thoughts and your thoughts. Uh, Without real discipline, uh, we are not going to think the way the scriptures teach us to think. If we just go on our own national, on our own rationalizations and uh, understandings, we're going to drift pretty far from the word. We are told in the scripture, there is a way that seemeth right unto man, but the end thereof are the ways of death. There is a way that just seems like the right way to react in our estimation, but we find in the scriptures that we're to respond in a different way than what comes naturally or normally to us. Then, of course, we have Romans that says, be not conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. They may prove what is that good and acceptable will of God. So again, don't be conformed by everything you hear, but let your mind be renewed, let it be restored, let it be refreshed, let it be changed by the word of God. So we have our key verses tonight, Ecclesiastes 7, 13, and 14, which reads, Consider the work of God. For who can make straight what he has made crooked? In the day of prosperity, be joyful. And the day of adversity, consider. God has made the one as well as the other, so that man may not find out anything that will be after. We will unpack those verses when we get to them uh, in the text. But uh, to me, they, again, are kind of foundational to the verses that surround it, and it tells us that we're to consider. That's what I'm referring to when I say staring out the window. Consider. The Hebrew word translated as the word consider means to reflect upon with admiration and affection. So that we're not just to think about these things, but we're to consider the work of God and who can make it straight. We're considered that God has made the one as well as the other. That is 
the good as, and pleasurable as well as the unpleasurable. That God is behind all of this. And we talk a lot about God's sovereignty. We talk a lot about God's providence. Because again, we can't talk about it enough. That all these events and circumstances of our lives are under God's control and, and brought into us. Um, I think we put way, way, way too much emphasis on the evil one. And we almost make it seem in some circles that, that God and Satan are almost equal and they're battling all the time. Whereas the evil one is under the dominion of God. He cannot do anything other than what God allows. And it's rather striking to me that Satan is not mentioned once in the book of Ecclesiastes. Not once. It's as though he's irrelevant. And I wouldn't go that far to say that Satan is irrelevant, but we need to stop and consider when it says that God has made the one as well as the other. The calamity as well as that which we enjoy. And that perspective will really change our, our thinking about a lot of things as we work our way through this passage. So number one, it's not about how you start, but it's about how you finish. Ecclesiastes 7, 8. And it should be the first half that's bolded, not the second. For I'm taking this from the words, better is the end of a thing than its beginning. There are many repetitious thoughts in Ecclesiastes, but in their repetition, there's a building, there's a, a growing, there's going to be a crescendo. And one of these recurring thoughts is the idea that the end is better than the beginning. We saw it when it came to life and death. Better is the day of one's death than the day of one's birth. It's another way of saying better is the end than the beginning. That had a pretty narrow uh, reference point. Here it's much broader. Simply saying that the end is better than the beginning because it's not about just potential, it's not about what could be, but it's about what's done. It's about bringing to fruition, bringing to completion. And we need to be focused upon the outcomes and not just the starts. So often we start well, but don't end well. We need to finish well. So A, patience is far better than being quick-tempered. Be not quick in your spirit to become angry, for anger lodges in the heart of fools. Instead of responding in anger, we're to respond coolly and slowly. Not emotionally, but reasonably, rationally, Keeping things in perspective. Oftentimes the things that upset us are not any real big deal in the big picture of things. And that's what we need to keep in mind, the big picture. Wisdom sees life as it really is. Say not, Ecclesiastes 7.10, why were the former days better than these? For it is not from wisdom that you ask this. How many times have you heard older people say, the good old days, the good old days? How often have you heard older people say the bad old days? But the reality is, there are good old days and there are bad old days. 
there tends to be a redaction in history. That's a term that's often used now to talk about how people rewrite history to make it to be what they want. So they redact it, they change it, they alter history in order to make it coincide with the outcomes that they would like to see. Well, redactionist history often goes on in our own minds. Our memories have a tendency to forget the bad and remember the good. Uh, we don't remember that our kids weren't always as well behaved as we think that they were. We don't remember that we were always as happy as we thought we were. We don't remember that there were sleepless nights as we were taking care of our children, etc., 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 etc. And we don't remember the struggles that we had. We don't remember a lot of the difficulties of situation. The reality is, beginning with Ecclesiastes chapter 1, there's nothing new under the sun. Nothing new under the sun. Today has problems. Yesterday had problems. Tomorrow will have problems. And it's important to keep God in perspective as you deal with the problems of life. Don't live in an irrational world that just laments the day and age in which we live and say, oh, if only I could go back to the good old days and be free from all this misery and hardship and difficulty. Well, there weren't good old days in which people did not know hardship and misery and difficulty. It's a false solace that we bring to ourselves. Then it moves on to say wisdom is more valuable than money. Those who have money have a huge advantage over those who do not have money. It doesn't deny that. Ecclesiastes 7.11, wisdom is good with inheritance, an advantage to those who see the sun. There is an advantage to having money, to be sure. Number two, however, that advantage exists only when money is used wisely. Wisdom is good with an inheritance. Wisdom is good when you, at the end of your life, have money that is left over. You have not squandered it. You have not wasted it. You have treated your, your wealth in an appropriate fashion. Wisdom can purchase what money cannot. Ecclesiastes 7.12, for the protection of wisdom is like the protection of money. And the advantage of knowledge is that wisdom preserves the life of him who has it. There is a lot of benefit that wisdom provides. One of the things that people look for for money is protection, as it says in verse 12. Uh, money is good for, quote-unquote, the rainy days, for difficult and hard times. Well, wisdom is valuable. In fact, even more valuable in difficult and hard times. To make wise decisions, to do what's appropriate, that which honors God, even as we saw this morning. But number two, wisdom embraces God's providence. And we've been talking an awful lot about God's providence these last weeks in the morning. Wisdom takes the time to ponder life. Wisdom takes time to ponder what God has done and is doing. Consider the work of God. Consider the work of God. Who can make straight what he has made crooked? Number two, wisdom learns to recognize mankind's limitations. Who can make straight what he has made crooked? And the answer is no one can. No one can. You can't overthrow the sovereignty of God. 
Three, wisdom understands that what we consider to be both the good and the bad aspects of life ultimately comes from God. In the day of prosperity, be joyful. And in the day of adversity, hardship, difficulty, that which is unpleasant, consider. God has made one as well as the other. Both of these come to us from God's hand. Good days and bad days. And we need to accept it as that. We need to trust that God is at work in whatever circumstance I am engaged in. And realize that God has a purpose, God has a reason. Wisdom recognizes that there's a mystery to God's sovereignty. Ecclesiastes 7.14, the day of prosperity be joyful and the day of adversity consider God has made the one as well as the other so that man may not find out anything that will be after him. In other words, this is a great mystery. It's unexplainable. And this is going to be developed in great length in just a moment. But the idea is that, that you're not able to explain why the good and the bad come. To distinguish between the two. Why is it that one day we are happy and the next day that there is adversity? Why does that happen? That's the question that Solomon is going to ponder at some length. Number five. Wisdom recognizes that life does not always turn out the way that we expect. God does not need to justify or explain himself to us. Ecclesiastes 7.15 In my vain life I have seen everything. There is a righteous man who perishes in his righteousness, and there is a wicked man who prolongs his life in his evil doing. Simply to say, life doesn't always turn out the way that you might think. That is, that the righteous man will always live a long life, and the wicked man is going to perish very quickly. No, sometimes the righteous man dies young. Sometimes the wicked man lives to a ripe old age. It's a reality. It's a fact of life. Ecclesiastes 8.14, a similar thought that we'll get to in weeks ahead. There's a vanity that takes place on earth. That there are righteous people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the wicked... And there are wicked people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the righteous. I said, this is also vanity. doesn't seem to make any sense. Why is it that this person who has lived a quote-unquote good life knows so much misery and hardship and this other person who's lived a rather wicked life and it seems as though they have no problems and no difficulties? We might even be envious of what they're experiencing. He says this is vanity. It's, it's unexplainable. It's unexplainable. So now we move to, again, very curious thoughts, and that is that we need to have a correct view of righteousness. First, regard against the self-made righteousness as a source of blessing. Be not overly righteous, and do not make yourself too wise. Why should you destroy yourself? Strange verse. Garrett 
uh, uh, Dwayne Garrett writes this about this verse. He says, quote, The warning not to be overrighteous or overwise is not an exhortation to do a little sinning. The teacher's not dealing here with the issues of personal sins as such. Rather, he is concerned with a philosophy of life that seeks the benefits of long life, prosperity, and personal happiness through the strict observation of religious and wisdom principles. A modern way to put it would be, do not be a fanatic. I don't know if that last line is particularly helpful, but what he is saying is right, that what this is talking about is an understanding of life in which if I toe the line, if if I do all the right things, then life is going to go really well for me. And if I don't toe the line and I don't do all the right things, if I skip my Bible reading or if something else happens, then, then my day is going to be shot. And if I have a lot of those days, then my week is going to be shot. And then my month's going to be shot. And then my year's going to be shot. And then my life's going to be shot. So it really depends on my own personal living up to the standards and expectations that I have set for myself. We'll say more about that in a moment. B, one cannot obtain to entire sanctification or sinless perfection. Verse 20, surely there's not a righteous man on earth who does good and never sins. That's a crazy expectation. It's not true. There's no one who doesn't sin. And there are groups that teach entire sanctification. There are people that say you can achieve a sinless life in this world. But the key is the way they describe sinfulness. Sinfulness becomes external. It becomes how long do you wear your your shirt sleeve? It becomes what color is your shirt that you're wearing? It becomes how long is the skirt that you are wearing? Are you wearing high heels or no heels? Are you wearing a hat? No hat. Are you wearing earrings? No earrings. It becomes all these externals. And the thought is, if you do all the right things, you'll be happy and life will go well, etc. But if you break the rules, life's going to be miserable. Now, having said that, there is this uh, correction, if you will. That is that Life choices do have consequences. Ecclesiastes 7.17, Be not overly wicked, neither be a fool. Why should you die before your time? So certainly, we're not talking about just go ahead and live a very sinful life. That's not what we're talking about here. But D, now there is something that we should never lose sight or never forget. Ecclesiastes 7.18, It's good that you should take hold of this. And from that, withhold not your hand. Don't let it go. E, we're to live our lives responsibly for, before God while trusting him for the outcomes of our lives. Ecclesiastes 7.18. It is good that you should take hold of this and that you should not withhold your hand, for the one who fears God shall come out from both of them. That is from these two erroneous ideas. The fear of God is not going to result in a self-righteousness. It's not going to result in a confidence based upon our own performance. 
it will keep us from being seeking to be overly righteous and it will keep us from being overly sinful if we recognize simply that our lives are in the hand of God and we're to live our lives to the honor and glory of God. This will come clear as we move on. F, we must not take ourselves too seriously and keep life in perspective. Do not take to heart all the things that people say, lest you hear your servant cursing you. Let some things just roll off your back. Don't harbor grudges. Don't get bent all out of shape if somebody says something to you that's not the most pleasant thing in the world. Let it go. Let it go. It's part of the being patient and not being quick to anger. And then it says this in number G, we must not hold people to a higher stand than we hold ourselves. Your heart knows that many times you yourself have cursed others. And we can at least acknowledge that when some people have said some thoughtless things to us, there are times that we've said thoughtless things to other people. While people have expressed frustration to us, there are times that we've expressed frustration to them. Keep life in perspective. Don't get this pity me aspect that everybody's out to get me, everybody hates me, and, and to get so self-absorbed that all we think about is the wrongs done to us and somehow we fail to see the wrongs that we have done to others. Number four, Solomon, the wisest man on earth, could not discover what I'm calling the keys to life. Ecclesiastes 7.23, all this I have tested by wisdom. I said, I will be wise, but it was far from me. That which has been is far off and deep, very deep. Who can find it out? Solomon was looking for an explanation as to wife why life turns out the way it does. Ecclesiastes 7.25. I turned my heart to know and to search out and to seek wisdom and the scheme of things. Now, this becomes the crux of the rest of the message. To consider out the scheme of things. And when he says the scheme of things, it's, it's the basis of things, the reason behind things. Why do things turn out the way that they do? Solomon was looking for an answer to how to live life so that you're always successful, you're always happy, <laughs> you're experiencing all the good days and none of the bad days, okay? What's the solution? What's the key? How do I order my life so that it ends with all I want and nothing in the baggage? So I've said, for example, and you hear so many messages, the five keys, the 10 steps, the spiritual secrets to a wonderful life, of which people tell us, if you just do this, this, and this, 
Life will be great. You'll have money. People will like you. No bad days. All you have to do is A, B, C, and D. If you just do the right things, life will turn out right. And there are many examples of that. Historically, the Wesleys were huge on that concept. And they developed what was referred to as a method. That's why we have the Methodist Church today. It adopted Wesley's method. He had a pattern. You do this, 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 and this, and life will be great. A little more recent that some of you older people will remember is Bill Gothard and the Bill Gothard seminars. And people flocked to them. Basic youth conflicts. And the idea was if you just follow the scriptural principles, then life will be great and you will do well and you will prosper. It's just a matter of mastering the scriptural principles that he was willing to share with us. And if you know Bill Gothard's life, it did not turn out well. And I do not say that in any gleeful way. It's sad. It's sad. His system failed him. For there is no such system. That's what Solomon discovers. It's not just five keys. It's not just ten steps. It's not just you do A, B, C, and D, and life is a charm. And you deviate from that. And life is miserable. So, B, Solomon then reports on his findings. Choices really do matter. Ecclesiastes 7.15. Whoops. Page 5. Ecclesiastes 7.26. And I found something. I find something. More bitter than death, the woman whose heart is snares and nets, and whose hands are fetters, he who pleases God escapes her, but the sinner is taken by her. So choices matter. And certainly if you're going to choose to pursue this wicked woman, you're going to have problems. So we're not saying choices don't matter. But however, life cannot be explained simply by choices. Verse 27, behold, this is what I found, says the preacher, while adding one thing to another to find the scheme of things, you see, he's trying to form a pattern here, adding one thing to another, steps, keys, to find the scheme of things which my soul has sought repeatedly, but I have not found. I haven't found. Can't, can't discern it. This, this pattern, which says that life cannot be reduced to a, similar, to a simple formula even a simple spiritual formula. You can't explain life that way. And then he says, true godliness is extremely rare. Religiosity is common. Making rules is common. Establishing certain standards is common. But true spirituality is rare. Ecclesiastes 7, 27 and 28. Behold, this is what I found, says the preacher, while adding one thing to another and to find the scheme of things. 
which my soul has sought repeatedly, but I've not found. One man among a thousand I found. But a woman among all these I have not found. So he says, how rare is it? Well, I found one man that I thought was godly, and I didn't find a single woman. Now, before you get bent out of shape over that one, uh, A, it is interesting to note that Solomon had 700 wives and 300 concubines. His wives turned his heart away from the Lord. None of these proved to be what he was looking for. 1 Kings 11.3, he had 700 wives who were princesses and 300 concubines, and his wives <coughs> turned away his heart. For when Solomon was old, his wives turned away his heart after other gods, and his heart was not wholly true to the Lord his God, as was the heart of David his father. So Solomon blames his waywardness on his wives. And his wives were not a help to him. But Solomon was also looking in all the wrong places. If you look at 1 Kings 11, 1 and 2, now King Solomon loved many foreign women, along with the daughter of Pharaoh, Moabite, Ammonite, Edomite, Sidonian, and Hittite women, from the nations concerning which the Lord had said to the people of Israel, you shall not enter into marriage with them, neither shall they with you, for surely they will turn away your heart after their gods. Solomon clung to these in love. So he disobeyed what God said. He married the wrong kind of women, and it turned out that they were no spiritual help to him, which shouldn't surprise us because the scripture said they would not be a spiritual help to them and they would turn away. So again, decisions have consequences. Decisions have consequences. But, number four, so anyway, when he's saying, you know, he hasn't found such a wife, as I say, he was looking in the wrong place, but Proverbs 31 says, a virtuous woman who can find her price is far above rubies, and then describes a virtuous woman. They're out there, but they're rare, just as spiritual men are rare, are rare. Number four, mankind's sinfulness cannot be blamed upon God's. Ecclesiastes 7.29, see, this alone I found, that God made man upright. God made man upright. As God created the human race, and here man is in the generic form for the human race, talking about Adam and Eve. When God made them, they were upright. And then you have verse 29, the second half, but they have sought out many schemes. They come up with their own standards of righteousness. They come up with their own standards of right and wrong rather than the word of God. And if you remember Adam and Eve, when uh, Satan tempted them and said, if God said you cannot eat from the tree of knowledge of good and evil, if you remember Eve's response was, we cannot eat of it, nor can we, what? Touch it. God never said you can't touch it. That was their scheme. That was their scheme, which is extremely common. That's why it's there right from the start. And the Hebrews referred to putting a fence 
around the Scriptures or the Torah. They put a fence around it. Bill Gothard talked about putting a hedge around it. And those of you who go to his seminars will remember, he used that a lot. Put a hedge around your children. Put a hedge around. And the idea of the hedge or the fence was that if you make standards that go beyond the Scriptures, you'll never break the Scriptures. It's like, if you think of sin as falling off a cliff, if you set up a barricade a quarter of the way before you get to the cliff, you will never fall off the cliff if you don't go by the barricade. Makes good common sense. Except the scripture says don't fall for that. The rudiments of this world. Man-made teachings about how to obtain righteousness and holiness. The Jewish people said that they would never pronounce the name of God. That's why today we don't know if God's name is to be pronounced Jehovah or Yahweh. Because even the priests, when they would read the scriptures, would replace the word Adonai, which means Lord, when they were reading it publicly. And the thought was, if we never say his name, we can never take it in vain. But the reality was they took his name in vain all the time because their standard did not meet God's standard. And there is a tendency to be religious without being spiritual. That is, to come up with our own man-made thoughts about how to live righteously rather than to yield to the word of God as our sole and final authority as to what is righteous and what is not, and not to add to or to take away. Not to come up with our own scheme, our own plan, but to submit ourselves to the wisdom of God. His ways are higher than our ways. His thoughts better than our thoughts. Submit to him rather than your own scheme. So verse 29, but they have sought out many schemes, many ways to be righteous. And, of course, the, there's a scale of those things. There's a scale of those things. The most grievous and, most grievous and egregious aspects are when people come up with their own idea about salvation. When people come up with a works righteousness, when people think they're going to be saved by doing good deeds, when people think they're going to be saved by the kind of life that they live, or people think they'll keep themselves saved by the kind of life that you live. Maybe you're going to be saved by grace, but you're going to be kept by works. And so you better continue to walk with the Lord or you're going to lose your salvation. It's common. It's common. But it's also very, very common for Christians who are born again, who have trusted Christ as their Lord and Savior, to come up with their own pattern and standard for righteousness. Thinking that in that pattern, I'm going to be happy. In that pattern, I'm going to preserve my children. In that pattern, I don't have to deal with these troubles and difficulties. They'll, they'll never plague me as long as I fulfill my pattern. As long as I keep the formula as long as I don't deviate from this plan 
Life is going to be great. There is no plan. There is no formula. Sometimes the righteous die young. Sometimes the wicked live to an old age. It's the way it is. It's the way it is. God makes the good days. God makes the difficult days. On the difficult days, don't sit there and beat yourself up and say, what did I do wrong? How is Satan getting the advantage in my life? Ponder, consider. God has made the one as well as the other. We can't make straight the things that he makes crooked. We can't change that aspect of life. But the strange thing is, it starts off by saying, consider this. Admire it. Embrace it with affection. Don't get frustrated by it, but be comforted by it. Realize God's goodness in this. And be willing to accept his plan and his purpose. Stop and consider the work of God. Stop and consider that he has made the one as well as the other. The days of joy and the days of adversity. Trust him. Trust him. And leave the scheming behind. The five steps to avoid life's troubles. Let's pray. Almighty God, help us. Help us, for we would all love to live a carefree life. A life that knows no pain or sorrow, no disease, no hardship, no difficulty. But, O Lord, our days are in your hands. We don't know what they hold. We don't know if we're going to have days like Job or we're going to have days like Moses who lived to a ripe old age and his eyes were not dim. Lord, we don't know what you have for our lives, but we know that you are faithful. We know that you are good. We know that you are loving. We know that you are kind. And Lord, help us to be comforted in you. And may we rejoice in praising you and exalting you in both the good days and not take it for granted as though we have earned those and that's a result of our righteousness, nor chafe under the bad days. But Lord, may we simply say, how are we to live today? Of which we are to be rejoicing in all things. We are to be giving thanks in all things. We are not to be conformed to the world. We're not to think like everyone around us. But rather, our God, we are to come to you today in appreciation 
for all that we are going through this moment, for you mean it for our good, and we are to learn from it, and we are to glorify you. So preserve us today. Keep our hearts and our minds stayed upon you, our sovereign God, who can be trusted in all things. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.